This morning, we are continuing our sermon series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. I invite you to open your Bibles with me there. As you turn in there, uh, I'll share so far I've had uh, the most interesting comments about sermons ever uh, this morning. So so we'll see. Uh, One person said, well, that was an interesting sermon. Uh, And then another person said, you know, I've never heard a sermon like that before. So I I don't know how to take that. So we'll (laughs) see. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. We'll, make, we'll muddle through together. Uh, but as we read the Bible, uh, we read it because uh, it, we believe it's inspired by God, that it reveals God to us, that as we read the Bible, we come to know God. Uh, we come to know ourselves and we learn to live how God created us to live. And so we're hearing Jesus' teaching for us, his uh, desires for us uh, and for all people. And so we're in verse 27. And he, he says, he's preaching here, uh, teaching, he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. We say thanks be to God. So in this passage, Jesus is talking about marriage, he's talking about sex, and he's talking about the desires of our heart, the way that God desires for us to desire, a way that leads to righteousness, uh, and a way that our desires can lead to the breakdown of our relationship with others, with God, and society as a whole. Jesus is teaching us so that the desires of our heart would align with God's desires for us and God's desires for the world. He's, He's offering God's best to us. And his teaching here is rooted within what God has intended for us, uh, since God created everything. And so this morning we're going to take a little bit of a look at God's purposes for us within our sexual relationships, how scripture encourages us to seek and to find fulfillment within our life, and then to reflect on what Jesus's words might mean for us today. And the reality is we could do a whole sermon series on this. We could spend, you know, multiple weeks just talking about all of what scripture has as it talks about uh, sex and marriage and singleness in our relationships Uh, We're going to try to cover as much as we can just in today as we're here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, back to the beginning. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1. And we're starting here because this gives us an idea of what God's intentions are for us before sin entered into the world, uh, before, uh, before we began to make a mess of things, before we began to make a mess of our relationships in the world we live in, this is what God's desires for us are. So we're reading in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. It says, So God created humankind in his image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves upon the earth. So it tells us here, Genesis 1, it says that God created uh, male and female in his, in his image. God blessed the male and female he had created, and he said, be fruitful and increase in number. And not to be too simplistic, but what might this tell us about God's purposes for sex? To have babies. Thank you. Yes. This is God's purposes. It might sound crazy in 2022 to suggest this, but when God created people, this was the purpose God gave for sex. It's not about pleasure. It's not about fulfillment. God's primary purpose was that sex would have the potential for procreation. I say potential because I know that uh, there are people in our world, in our society, people that we might know and love who struggle with infertility. I think there's many effects of the fall that we see around the world. Uh, Not the result of any person's fault, not necessarily any person's fault, just kind of the world that we live in, not the way that God would have it to be. But what God desires for us, the way God intended, the way God created, the way the world works in God's best, is that sex would be a procreative act. We're going to keep reading in Genesis here and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 gives uh, another account of creation and it speaks to the kind of relationships where having children functions best. In Genesis 2, we read how God created the man. He placed him in the garden. He took out his rib, made a woman, sewed up the place in him and then brought the woman to the man. And then in Genesis 2, 24, it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. A man and a woman unite together as one flesh. This is what we call marriage. You know, if you've been to a wedding recently, you've probably seen a few things that uh, attempt to sort of illustrate what this uniting together as one flesh might look like. You know, there's the uh, the three cords kind of thing that people do. You know, one cord or one rope represents the groom, one represents the bride, one represents God, and they, they weave them together, right? So that it's uh, three different things but are brought together with God at the center and it's it's brought together as one. They're, they're united together. Or there's uh, another thing that people use, um, like vials of sand, and they have have three vials of sand and they mix them all together in the same jar. You know, one vial of sand is the groom, one for the bride, one for God. They mix them together uh, to illustrate their being united together as one. Uh, and then good luck trying to separate those grains of sand and, and remove them from one another again. Right, we do these kinds of things to help us think through and illustrate what God's intentions for our relationships might be like. It's God's intention, the way God planned, the way God designed it to work. Man and woman unite together to become one flesh. Now we know, uh, part of the world that we live in, the way that it works, uh, part of some of our own life experiences, that not every marriage works. And it's part of the effect of sin within our lives. But as we're thinking about what God intends, what God's purposes are for us, I I think we could all say that... 
Well, Lisa, I've never heard of anybody who's gone through a divorce that hasn't expressed that there's some sort of pain within that, uh, that it is some sort of hurt that's connected in that. I mean, there's definitely situations where divorce needs to occur, but I don't think we would ever look at it and say that this is God's best, or this is what God intends or wants or desires for us, because it creates hurt in our lives and in the lives of others. You know, we as people, we mess up. We as people make mistakes, and others get hurt in the process. You know, my, my parents have been uh, divorced for a little while now. I was already grown and out of the house and started my own family uh, by the time that it happened. But it's still something that hurts. And I'm reminded every holiday, every birthday, uh, that it hurts because both of them can't be in the same place at the same time. We've got to juggle schedules to figure out, well, who gets to see, this, who gets to see the kids now or then or, or however else it all works together. But it wasn't God's fault or God's desire that that would happen. It's our own sin in our lives that prevent us from desiring uh, what God desires for us. Now, I do believe that there's healing possible for people who've been through divorce. There's no, it's not a scarlet letter that people have to wear around. We're not in a position where we try to condemn others. But I think scripture just points out to us, though, that it's a hard thing for people to go through. So as a church, what that means is that we find ways to support and encourage and value marriage. We find ways to support and value people who are experiencing or who have been through divorce, to come alongside of them, to provide a healing community for people who've been affected by it, to offer a sense of love and of hope and of healing that comes through Christ for people who've experienced the hurt of the world that we live in. So God created us male and female. God designed sex to be for the purpose of having children, and God designed marriage to be the place where sex and children would take place. Uh, and, and it's interesting, right, because sometimes I think, you know, we look at Scripture and we say, oh, well, you know, that's, maybe that's what it said 2,000 years ago. But there's, there's actually some social sciences that back some of this stuff up. There was research done by the National Center for Education Statistics, and it's talking about the likelihood of children to grow up and experience poverty based on the family situation they were raised in. And so this research, this study suggested, or actually didn't suggest, this is what the data said, is that the percentage of children who grow up in a two-parent household that end up in poverty is 30% less than children raised by a single mother, 15% less than children raised by a single father. I mean, that's a, a pretty remarkable difference, I would say, that kind of points to us, that kind of illustrates that maybe God had a good idea when he said that this is the best scenario in which children can be raised. And so what it suggests to me is that as a church, we should do everything we can to support married couples, offer them encouragement and help in navigating life, offer them support so they could find ways to grow in their relationship with God and with one another. Not only is it God's best, but it's good for the community. It's good for children who grow up uh, in a stable environment where they can succeed and thrive in life. It also suggests, though, that we as the church should look for ways to come alongside of single parents and their children to help them navigate what many times is a more challenging road. We have a great opportunity within our community uh, to be the kind of place that offers a more hopeful outcome to single parents and their children through the ways that we can provide support, through, through mentoring, uh, through creating a community that lives out our baptismal vows 
to nurture and support one another, to nurture and support children, regardless of what's taking place with their parents' lives. Nobody ever needs our condemnation. Life is hard enough already. People need our willingness to be able to journey through life with them, to be able to help them find God's purpose for them within their life. You know, one of the one of the great aspects of our VBS mission project this year uh, was that we uh, raised support, we gathered supplies and items to support Guardian Ad Litem. It's an organization in our community that uh, works with children who've been neglected, abused, or abandoned, supports them as they go to court, uh, provides mentoring for children who are in that kind of position. Uh, and our VBS program, the, the kids, the families, and people who are part of the church, you know, brought in games and gift cards to support that work. Of supporting children in these difficult situations. Another great project that our church is invested and involved in is a collaboration that started at the beginning of COVID. Uh, whenever people were struggling and figuring out what happened next, uh, there was an organization that said we could use a little bit of help. The Florida Center for Early Childhood and their Healthy Families Program. It's a program that provides support to expectant parents and parents of newborns to equip them with the knowledge and skills they need to create safe, uh, stable, and nurturing home environments. And so they, they said, hey, we could really use some diapers and wipes to help parents who are trying to put things together in this difficult time. So our church began collecting diapers and wipes. We still do, and whenever we get some, we, we send them over to them to support families, to support children in our community that need a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of support. Now, there's another great organization in our community that I hope that we can find ways to connect and partner with, uh, an organization that supports you know, parents-to-be and parents of newborns. Uh, it's called Pregnancy Solutions. And they come alongside of and provide support, counseling, mentoring uh, to people as they are expecting children, as well as material resources to help them after the child is born and navigating the first couple of years of life. All of these are programs in our community that do amazing work for the good of the community. So my hope is that, that we can find more ways to be involved in important ministry work like this as we're coming alongside of children and families, as we're sharing with them the love of God. Now, as we're talking about God's desires for us, in particular God's desires for us in uh, sex and in marriage, there's another important idea in scripture uh, for us to wrestle with, and it's uh, the gift of singleness. And so I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Paul is writing, he's picking up on uh, the wisdom of the Old Testament, uh, wisdom from Jesus and he says, now uh, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And to the unmarried and the widow I say, it is good for them to remain unmarried as I am. Now this passage, it says a lot. Uh, Again, as we're talking about, I mean, we could spend weeks kind of looking through this one passage, but but I want us to focus in on verses 7 and 8, particularly verse 8. You know, this is Paul writing. Paul, who wrote what amounts to be half of the New Testament. Uh, And his encouragement in verse 8 is that people would stay unmarried. His encouragement in verse 8 is that people would be single. And he uses himself as a reference. It's like, I wish that you would be like me. Remain single. I think this is kind of a, a big deal uh, in a lot of ways. One in which, though, is that, that our culture, the kind of society we live in, tends to tell us that you're only complete if you have some kind of relationship with somebody else. It suggests in so many different ways that you need a partner to make you whole. You need somebody in your life or else you can't find wholeness. You need that other person who's going to fulfill you. But the Bible says that's just not true. In fact, I think scripture would kind of say to us that if you're looking for another person to make you whole, then you're only going to find yourself empty. That you can't put that kind of pressure on yourself. You can't put that kind of pressure on another person. There's no other person who has the ability to complete us. No other person who can make us whole. That's something that only God can do. Right? It's only in our relationship with God that we find wholeness. It's only in our relationship with God that we find fulfillment, that we can be made complete. There's no person that can fill that God-shaped hole within us, that yearning and desire within us. And so before we try to find that in somebody else, we first have to find our wholeness in God. And then if we've found our sense of wholeness in God and our relationship with God and the love that God has for us, it gives us a, a new kind of freedom to fully give of ourselves to another person. If we're not trying to look to them to make us whole, if we found our wholeness in God, it frees up uh, the, the relationship. It lets go of that pressure that we put upon it because I'm not looking for them to do something that only God can do. So I love what Paul says here in verse 7 as he's talking about singleness. He calls singleness a gift. He talks about uh, singleness and marriage both as gift. The single life is free to be lived as a gift to God and a gift to the world. Now, Paul isn't saying that if you're already married that you should leave that relationship. In fact, if you were to read a little bit further on in uh, chapter 7, he would say, don't do that. Um, Rather, he's focusing on the gift that it is to be single. The need for us to find contentment in our relationship with God first. And until we do that, then we're not really ready to be in a relationship with someone else. And I think as we're trying to process and and understand, as Paul's talking about singleness and what it means for us as a church, it means that we have a a mission, a couple of missions. It means one uh, in particular is that we need to be the kind of church where people who are single can thrive. While we don't need sex for fulfillment, all of us need meaningful relationships. We all need people who can walk through life alongside of us, who can journey through the ups and downs, who can support us, who can share and fellowship with us. 
One of the calls of the church in our time is to be a place that values our friendships with one another enough. That includes people enough that all people, whether they're married or single, can find a family. It's the kind of connection God desires for us to have. It's the mission that we have as a church. Now, it's important to note uh, that this call to singleness is something that's new in the New Testament. Now, the sexual ethic of the New Testament doesn't change from the Old Testament, but this invitation for people to live as single is new. Uh, One of the reasons for that is that in the Old Testament, God's covenant people, the people of Israel, were a relatively small group uh, within all the various civilizations around them. So this call to be fruitful and increase in number was a necessity to continue God's covenant relationship. It was a necessity for God's family to grow. Marriage and having children was one of the primary ways that God's people were to thrive in a hostile world. In the New Testament, the primary way that God's family to, to grow is by making disciples. It's by reaching and inviting new people into a relationship with Jesus. There's space still for marriage and for having children, but the primary way that God desires for us as a church, uh, for his kingdom, for us as a family to grow, is by sharing the good news of Jesus with people around us, by inviting them to know Jesus, to join God's family through new birth, right through being born again, through becoming participants in God's inbreaking kingdom. So what does all of this now have to do with what Jesus said? I mean, how does God's intentions and desires relate to Jesus' instructions for us? First, I think we have to know that this teaching from Jesus is a way in which Jesus was seeking to elevate women. A way in which Jesus was seeking to protect women. In Jesus' time, women had few ways to make a living. Men were really the sole providers within the relationships. A certificate of divorce uh, was what the law required uh, under the conditions of, uh, of adultery. But many people at that time had began to kind of expand that to where uh, there was a story of somebody issuing a certificate of divorce because his, you know, his wife burnt the toast or, or something equivalent to that. And so women would just kind of be uh, used up and thrown to the side at the whim of their husband. And so Jesus is saying, this isn't right. This isn't okay. This isn't God's desire for us as people. Uh, It's not God's desire for the way in which we live and we treat one another. So Jesus is pointing out to men. uh, He wants them to fully grasp the difficult, the dangerous situation they would be putting women in. He's placing responsibility on men to do good. To think about the good of others beyond themselves. In in marriage counseling, I often share this quote from one of my professors. It says, we don't marry the person we love, we learn to love the person we marry. And I think Jesus is putting this kind of obligation on men that, hey, you've got to learn to love this person you've decided to marry, this person you've united with, this person whom uh, you have joined as one flesh with God in. And he's also putting the obligation on men to learn how to love and to learn how to be a person worth loving. It's for the good of his wife. It's also for his own good and for the good of the community. It's a call to desire rightly what God desires for us. 
I think the second part that we have to remember is that this teaching from Jesus falls uh, under uh, this caution that he has for us in Matthew 5.20 where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is offering instruction. He's offering teaching to us so that we would guard the desires of our heart. Before adultery occurs, before sexual immorality occurs, there's a lust that exists within our hearts. Before anything external takes place, there's something internal that is, uh, that is often out of place within us. Lust is a poison that disrupts our relationships with others, not only with a spouse, but with all people. Lust treats people as though they are commodities, people as though they are products that exist for the sole purpose of fulfilling our desires. Lusting for another person distracts us from being able to love others well. It damages all of our relationships and the, damages the way that we treat people because we don't see them as people who've been created in God's image. We don't see one another as people whom Jesus gave his life for. We see people as objects just to fulfill whatever desires I might have. It hurts the community as a whole because it creates an economy where people sell themselves to make money off of the lust of others. All of this does damage to the way in which uh, we see one another. It does damage to the image of God within us and within the people around us. Rather than seeking God's best for others, lust comes from a place of selfishness where we're only looking out for ourselves without regard for those around us. It moves us from seeking our fulfillment in our relationship with God to thinking that a person is going to be able to fill that God-shaped hole within us. So Jesus He's guiding us. He's pointing us to get our desires within our heart aimed fully at seeking God, seeking his kingdom, trusting that God will make everything else fall into place as we do. Now, there's some that might say that Jesus' teachings you know, are a little bit too restrictive, a little bit repressive. Now, can I just do what I want? I mean, it's my body. Well, we're going to look again in 1 Corinthians, uh, this time chapter 6, uh, looking at verses 18 through 20. This is Paul writing a little bit more, and he says to us, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And when it says sexual immorality, it means sex that takes place outside of a man and woman being married. And then it answers to us this question, at least, at least for the Christian, at least for those who have said yes to Jesus as their Savior and Lord, of why I can't just do what I want. It says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That you were bought with a price. So we're called to honor God with our bodies, to honor God in our relationships with one another. We were bought at a price because all of us have sinned. All of us have messed up in some way. Some, way, some of us may have messed up in our sexual lives. Some of us may have messed up in the ways in which we love for other, uh, the way that we lust for others. Some of us may have uh, made mistakes uh, within our marriages that have created hurt and harm for others. Some of us might just feel as like we're messed up all together in every part of it. But the truth is that all of us have made mistakes in one form or another. All of us have sinned. 
Paul in Romans 3 uh, tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's an issue that affects each and every one of us. But it also tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that while we were sinners, while we were kind of all messed up and all making a mess of God's creation, that Jesus died for us. It tells us that uh, though uh, death was the wages of our sin, eternal separation from God, that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, that he died the death that was meant for us, that he paid the price so that we could be forgiven, so that death and eternal separation from God would not be the price that we had to pay. And so Jesus invites us to experience this right relationship with God, to experience his healing work within our lives, whatever hurts and wounds we carry, to be able to lay them at his feet, to let his love and his grace and his mercy wash over us so that we might be renewed and made whole, and so that we might seek our fulfillment and our connection and our relationship with him. So we might be able to freely offer ourselves to those around us. He invites us to be in right relationship with God. And he shows us how we might live in right relationship with others. Jesus models for us God's faithfulness to us. He instructs us and leads us in ways in which we might be faithful to one another. And he calls us to have our desires ordered rightly. To seek first God's kingdom. Trusting that God will provide all the other things that we need. And so this morning, whether you've missed out on God's best for you or not, whether you've messed up in your relationships with others, Jesus comes to offer us grace, to offer us forgiveness, to invite us into a new life where we can find that sense of fulfillment, that sense of wholeness in our relationship with God, where we can learn how to be good friends with one another, how we can learn how to have healthy and whole relationships with one another, and how we can follow God's purposes and God's intentions for us in singleness, in a marriage, and as a church family. Now, let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks. Uh, for the faithfulness that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, that even while we were sinners, Christ came and died for us so that we might have life. We thank you for that kind of love, that kind of grace, the way that you have shown mercy to us. We pray, Lord, that we might be a people who honor you with every part of our lives. We pray that you would guide the desires of our heart, that we might seek you first. We might find our wholeness, our sense of fulfillment and completeness within you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.